Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Listen to evening across the world in the United States. Hope everybody's having a good evening and hope they had a good day. I'm Rob Starr along with Mr. Chris Davies, and we are the host of the Water Zone Show. And hope everybody's doing well. So, Mr. Davy, how are you today? Terrific. Thank you very much, Rob. I hope you're the same. Nice to see you last week, by the way, buddy. Yes, it was nice to be back in the office for a couple of days and doing some work and catching up. And uh, but. Uh, you know, we got to move on and keep on doing what we're doing to make make things happen. So, but it was it, it was great to be there. I got a lot of stuff done, and uh, I'm very happy about that. But I was going to tell you what was what's interesting to me. I was reading articles about water because that's what we talk about, and I always want to keep informed. And I always go to we all you and I both go to Maven's Notebook. But one of the one of the things that I was reading was what they listed as the biggest problems concerning water in the U.S. And Chris, this is pretty interesting because when I look at this, it all it's all the same things that we're experiencing in California. You know what the number one issue was or concern in water? I do, but if there's a prize, it's unfair that I'll get it. So. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you a prize anyway. Uh, <laughs> number one was providing safe drinking water. Okay, and we have yeah. that issue here in California. Number yep. two was water requirements for further agriculture. Yep. That's, that's a truism. Three, sustainability of water development projects. Yep. And the fourth one was development of water resources shared by two or more states. And it's amazing that across the country, they're all having the same issue. Yeah, it's like California's the canary in the coal mine, right? It's got, it's got all the issues that, glo- that nationally, in fact, if not globally, are shared by uh, the rest of the country or the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. So I was kind of I was kind of amazed at that. I thought different areas would have different things, and and, and it might be skewed, but it wasn't. And I was really amazed at that. But you know who knows a lot about what's going on here in California for water? Miss Chris Austin, and she is the. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. Go ahead. No, I think I thought you were asking me a question again. I was going to say you're asking me all the questions I already know. <laughs> no, I, well, I, well, I thought you'd introduce the wonderful Miss Chris Austin. Yes, let's bring her on to the show. Chris Austin, welcome. Hey, good evening, everybody. And, you know, interesting as you were talking about, uh, you know, reading off that those list of things, you know, while, yes, we do share all those things uh, in common, certainly, that you listed, California is unique in one one way. And, you know, sometimes at conferences, they show a map of the United States, and it's a map of the standard deviation from mean precipitation, meaning you have the average, and then how far it varies within that average, you know, the highest it gets, the lowest it gets, it's kind of put into this statistical equation. And, you know, what it shows is that back east, uh, that's very, very low, meaning they always get rain and they always get rain within this certain small amount. And as you start moving out to the west, it stays about the same. And then you cross over the Rockies and it gets a little variable 
a little more variable. And then when you get to California, it, it, it's crazy different. It's crazy more variable. And, you know, and, and even so, Southern California is even more so. Uh, so, you know, the, the hardest thing that we have to deal with here is the variability. And uh, when you kind of look at where the hydrology is going, I was, uh, you know, working on a write-up of a panel discussion, and they pointed out that we had a lot of rain in October. It was, in fact, the wettest October that we ever had. And then we had a very dry November, and it was, you know, a significantly dry November, you know, up there, maybe broke a record, maybe not. And then we had a really wet December, and and that was followed by a really, really dry January. So this is this weather whiplash phenomena that, uh, that we're seeing. Uh, California's always had variability, but this kind of variability is, uh, you know, really starting to take center stage. So. Amazing. So what is the big uh, issues going on this week? Some big, big news with, uh, I was reading uh, Senator, State Senator Melissa Hurtado. She's kind of causing a little bit of a rumble. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> she. She has uh, introduced a piece of legislation that would dissolve the state water board, hand over a lot of uh, things to the Department of Water Resources, and then, you know, get some blue ribbon commission going to figure out how to best manage the state's water resources. People are mad at the state water board because they see them as taking the water, you know, um, and the, with the regulations and stuff. So they're not necessarily, you know, popular people, shall we say, in, you know, if you're a regulated entity. But, you know, what I think is, you know, interesting about this is that, uh, is that the state water board actually deals with a lot, a lot of stuff. Um, they deal with drinking water now, that's new. They have a division of drinking water, so they're managing, they're regulating now all the the uh, drinking, you know, public drinking water systems in the state that used to be with the Department of Health and Human Services, but they consolidated that over to the state water board. Uh, the state water board also does water quality regulation in statewide. And they also administer water rights. And uh, this is really very technical stuff. And the reason why the state water board is not elected is because you need people sitting in those positions that really understand what's going on. And, you know, those aren't necessarily the elected people. I mean, I'm. The state water board is set up so that there's one member is an engineer, one member has to be a lawyer, uh, one member has to be agricultural. Um, you know, I can't remember, but there's it's a it's a five member board, and each member needs to be a special a specialist in something. And there's a uh, one position open for a person of the public. Uh, 
because this they deal with highly technical stuff <laughs> and and so this this idea that we can just dissolve the state water board is is really you know there there that there's a lot of issues to that so I'm not thinking that it's going to really go far, but we'll see. We'll see who's mad at the state water board in the state capitol, and you know. Well, I see they. I see they also want to. They want to do a, a blue panel committee and stuff. Why? Why do we have all of these different groups? I mean, it's just, it just sounds like we're replicating people from one organization to another state organization to another state organization. And yes, it gives jobs to people. But it's also, to me, it seems like it's duplicating all everybody's work. Well, the thing is, you know, with these blue ribbon commissions is that it, it, sometimes they set them up and these people work for a couple years and they produce a report and the report goes to the legislature and nothing moves, nothing changes. And yep. it goes up onto the shelf, right? Um, you know, so something like this, now, but there's also been blue ribbon commissions that have completed stuff. Like there was a blue ribbon commission, I believe, for the Marine Life Protection Act, which figured out which areas of the California coast they would declare protected for certain things. And probably most importantly, there was a blue ribbon set up for the Delta process uh, that they produced a report for the legislature and that actually resulted in the 2009 water package that included the Delta Reform Act that established, you know, the Delta Stewardship Council and a whole bunch of other things along with it. I think which has been generally a pretty good thing for the Delta. So sometimes they go somewhere, but other times <laughs> nothing, nothing really happens. Uh, just another report that goes up onto the shelf. So, you know, unless you have people that in Sacramento that are going to carry the legislation to make things pan out, you know. Uh, but it just, it just seems like government keeps expanding and expanding and expanding to all these different, you know, somebody, some department kicks it off to some other one to start a new one and just keeps going on and on. And, and then nobody can, like you said, nobody can agree on it. Yeah, we'll we'll see where it goes. I'm I'm gonna think it's not gonna go far because it's just not as easy. And you know, D DWR, the Department of Water Resources, it, it isn't really a regulatory agency. The State Water Board, they're regulators, so they want to kick over. You know, they want to make an agency that's not really a regulator into a regulating you know agency. That's um, that's a that's a big change <laughs> in the government world. So we'll we'll see where it goes. I I don't think that's the answer though. Although I don't have an opinion, so that should not be construed <laughs> as an opinion. But I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Do you think Senator Hurtado is going to switch? Uh, um, switching one. Uh, what do you call it? Being. Democrat to Republican or vice versa? <laughs> oh, oh, heck no. And, you know, she she has been very active in water. And, you know, she was very active in working to get money for to repair the Bryant Kern Canal, which is a major agricultural canal in the Central Valley. Um, you know, she introduced legislation for that. So she's very active on these issues. And, 
And I, I would say that she's representing well for her constituents there, you know, coming from an agricultural town of counties in the San Joaquin Valley. So, so she, she know, reaches she reaches across the aisles. What you're saying as well. Well, yeah, sure. And she's, you know, and she's doing she's doing the best for her constituents, which is kind of what you send people to Sacramento to do, right? That's what, that's what we hope for. They you know, not always yeah. agree with what she's doing, but you know, but her constituents do, and that's that's the governance process is you know hacking these things out, you know, in the legislature, different views, you know. So that's true. I know Mr. Davey was discussing a uh, an issue he wants to bring up, right, Chris? Yeah. So I mean, let's stay on the theme of controversy, Chris. Maybe not uh, wanting to put you in a pickle jar again with this, but. You know, I can't tell you how many stories just this week that I read, various publications, including on, on Maven's notebook, about <laughs> the federal water deliveries and federal government saying, hey, I'm not going to give anything to farmers in, in, in California. And then, uh, you know, following articles about how the farmers are fearful about what's going what's to happen in the spring and fall and the growing season. What's the latest on that? Well, you know... It's, yeah, it's interesting how people cast that story. Uh, you know, yep. the problem is that uh, there's not much water in the reservoirs. I, I was trying to look online as we were going on to see how much water was in Shasta, which is primarily for agriculture. Last I heard, it was around the 30%. And, you know, there's real concerns for, you know, you can't have an empty reservoir because there's health and safety needs and fire suppression in communities and stuff. I mean, there's a certain amount of water that really needs to be provided. And it's really a hard call, I think, for the water managers when you have so very little left, how much do you, how much are you going to give out? Um so, but it's really hard for the farmers because this is going to be the second year in a row where uh, some farmers are receiving zero percent allocation, and you know groundwater management is now in play. And so, although last year there was a lot of groundwater pumping because it was a dry year, uh, it was much less than what was happening in the drought before we had sustainable groundwater management. And they actually, the data backs it up that, you know, the Department of Water Resources released some data on land subsidence, and it shows that there was still land subsidence due to groundwater withdrawal in the San Joaquin Valley, but not nearly as much as we had in the previous drought. So, you know, groundwater is kicking in, but it's it's really tough. It's tough to be a farmer in the San Joaquin Valley these days. Yeah, uh, you know, there's no surface water. There's no groundwater. Um, I, I'm not sure how this is going to play out, but we're just going to have to see. Maybe, you know, again, you know, it's, I, I don't, you don't want to be over enthusiastic in the beginning, and I don't want to be a doomsday sayer now quite yet. Because the season isn't over yet, and you know, while it's not looking good, and you know we should not go crazy, I don't think it's time yet to really 
you know, throw in the towel. But we need yeah, to no. be prepared for another dry year in case yeah. that's the way it shakes out. Yeah, no panic for sure. But I, I'll tell you, I'm glad I read, I read several stories on the water allocation issue because, <clears throat> as you said, it's interesting how people cast this story, right? And and every every article I read or every blog or news piece that I read had a different take on it, Chris. I mean, you know, I even read one where where the theory was the water allocations are being held back because of the fire threat this summer, right? I mean, I mean, how I don't know. That seems just pretty far fetched to me. Now we're looking at really dry conditions, dwindling amounts in our reservoirs. And, you know, the worst thing we can do is run out of water, you know, for cities. Uh, and, I mean, and, and certainly the rivers and for the fish and the critters and everything out there, we certainly don't want to dry up, the, you know, the rivers. But, uh, you, you know, we sure want to be able to supply cities, you know, folks. is highly impactful. And these are tough decisions, tough decisions that, you know, these water managers have to go through. So I'm glad I'm not one of them because, <laughs> you know, it, it's hard, you know, and when you have, you know, when you have only so much money in your bank account, how much money do you spend, <laughs> you know, especially if you don't know when there's going to be more money coming in. When you go to the grocery store, what do you buy? Do you buy peanut butter and bread or do you buy steak? You know, it's that's kind of you know the question that you know it is with the reservoirs. You know, how much you going to hold back if it stays dry? Right. One of the, one of the other stories that I know Chris and I were talking about previous was uh, this Ocean Protection Council. Uh, they want to rein in, I guess, all this microplastics in the ocean and start picking stuff up in San Mateo County. And I know they get, I know it's just a suggestion. They got to go through legislation. What what do you see with that? But I I think it's a great idea. The only problem how you, how are they going to enforce it? You know, the the microplastic issue is it's actually really huge. Yep. And what we're finding out, you know, if you think about it, then it in retrospect it, it makes sense. Like uh, an, one significant source of microplastic pollution to waterways is the paint on bridges. And if you think about it, you have to paint those bridges because the paint is, you know, flecking away. So where's that, that paint going? Well, it's going into the waterways and that becomes a source. Uh, you know, the, the, they did a study in San Francisco Bay a few years ago and they found out a significant source of, of pollution to the bay was little shreds of people's tires. And think about it, your your treads wear down. Well well where'd that stuff go? <laughs> well now we know. Uh so really we need to be kind of trying to do something about this microplastic issue. It it's all over the place. I mean they found they have found microplastic in the bottom of the Mariana Trench, and there it it is no path because it's in the atmosphere, and when it snows, snows brings microplastic down. I mean, plastic is amazing, and 
you know, and we've only just begun to address this issue. Well, you, know? you have, you know, you have the stuff where the tires on the freeway and it rains and it washes it down into the ocean. So yeah, you're right. I, I, I just don't know how, you know, I mean, I, you know, we work with the Wyland Foundation a lot and, and, you know, they, they worry about sea turtles with the plastic rings from the, from the yeah. water and things like that. And it's terrible. It's terrible. And, it's, and obviously, we all know that there's places out in the ocean that are tremendous pools of bottles, <laughs> thousands. I mean, there's companies. And garbage, have, you know, yeah, and all kinds of stuff. Try, and try to recycle it. But how do you stop it? Well, let me, let me add something to that here, guys, because, you know, you hear a lot about microplastic pollution and pollution in the ocean, but there's very few articles, very few uh, people talk about microplastic pollution on the land. And and by the way, just in the in the last recent decade or so, it's been theorized that microplastic pollution on land is worse than microplastic pollution in the ocean. And that's yeah, something and, to think about. And and this is because they what they call it plasticulture, you know, the the use of plastic on the land for around the plants. They grow strawberries like this and all kinds of plants where they're laying out tremendous sheets of plastic and then they're poking plants in, you know, along the way. And yeah, these this plastic sheeting is sitting out there in the in the cuts and it's you know, yeah, it's going into the soil too. You know, it's microplastics and PFAS. <laughs> the biggest challenges, uh, our, our biggest pollution challenges, you know, PFAS is uh, Teflon and it's in firefighting foam and it's in really any product that provides waterproofing. It's also in fertilizers. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's all over the place too. And do you remember the story on I forget where it was where they were putting these uh, plastic balls in in reservoirs and things and lakes so it would protect the the water from getting the sun? And oh yeah, well, LADWP had to do that. Um, right, but some of some of that plastic stuff from the the balls got into the water as well. Yeah, well, it, it might have, but you know, uh, I do believe Los Angeles has covered now all the reservoirs the the ball plastic balls were just a, a temporary way that they had to comply with the drinking water re regulations that required covered reservoirs you know la system is built in the ninth early 1900s right it still had you know they had to upgrade it and it took them several years but i do believe that now it, it is all they're all under covered reservoirs but it's funny how that that story soared out of context as people thought they were doing that because of the drought and no no they started dumping balls into reservoirs many years before uh you know to cover them up that was the issue you know well, last last thing because we got a few minutes about two minutes left is, you know, they're talking about the sea rise up in uh, Northern California by the beach, and they say it's going to be seven to twenty-one inches by twenty fifty, and they think it's going to rise six feet by the end of the century. And you know, the territory up there is uh, they're talking hundreds of thousands of people and businesses and things. How do you see that? Oh yeah, sea level rise is going to be a big challenge. Um, 
Uh, and yeah, the the projections. Well, we we know it's happening, and actually, it's supposed to be worse on the east coast, worse than it's going to be here. But it's still going to be hugely impactful wherever it, wherever it is. And there's just a lot of coastal infrastructure. Uh, I mean, I think about the Bay Area. There's so much there on you know in in the Bay itself, you know, and in housing and all up and down the coast. Yeah, and it's a hard. Uh, hard topic to broach, especially with, uh, you know, homeowners along the coast who want to build seawalls and, and all those sorts of things. But, you know, seawalls, uh, the, the oceans are going to rise and they're going to continue to rise. And, you know, I, it's, it's, uh, it's a problem. Uh, and the other thing with sea level rise is that uh, it's going to put more pressure you know, because groundwater aquifers are connected to the ocean, and as the sea let, seas rise, it's going to put more pressure on coastal aquifers, uh, which means more seawater intrusion, but it also means uh, in areas where the water table is very high, uh, you know, in some areas of the Bay Area, they have very low-lying areas, it's going to push groundwater up and cause flooding behind the levees. You can't, you, it's not the waves coming in, it's the, the sea pushing on the groundwater, pushing that water up to the surface. And, you know, the potential for destabilizing uh, infrastructure. And generally, these low lying areas are, you know, the low income areas as well. Yeah. So it, you know, it's a huge issue for the Bay Area, a huge issue. Well, we'll we'll be talking about that for years to come. But Chris, we want to thank you for coming on today. And just for our listeners, if you want to get the most in California water news, go to maidensnotebook.com, become a subscriber, also become a sponsor. Like we, Chris and I, get our emails every single morning with the latest from this. Uh, Ms. Austin, and we appreciate reading that, and she's a great part of our show. Thank you very much. You have a great week. You stay safe, and we will talk to you next week. All right. Good evening, everybody. Thank you, Chris. All right. We're going to take a little little break uh, for our commercials, and we'll be right back with our featured guest. And uh, so stick around because he's uh, a good, smart person. All right. We'll be back in just a moment. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. Are you presently part of the irrigation industry as a worker or business owner? Do you want to learn how you and your staff can boost your knowledge and productivity? Then you should check out Irrigator Technical Training School. Irrigator Tech is the leading source of quality instruction serving all facets of the irrigation industry. Their courses provide a basic, easy-to-understand approach that raises the skill level, competency, and professionalism of landscape and irrigation personnel through practical education and services. Irrigator Tech combines classroom and real-life hands-on training, leading to a well-recognized certification that both customers and employers demand. Irrigator Tech's specialized courses can help you quickly become a certified irrigation auditor or a certified installer, repair, maintenance, or backflow technician 
Courses also include certificates in smart water application or becoming a certified tree worker. Most importantly, all certifications are state recognized and Irrigator Tech offers annual renewal classes to help keep your certification up to date. So whether you work in California, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, or Arizona, there's an Irrigator Tech class near you. For more information on how to jumpstart your career, call Irrigator Tech toll-free 866-614-1755 or visit them on the web at irrigatortech.com. That's toll-free 866-614-1755 and on the web at irrigatortech.com. Love you, love you not. They love you. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it, instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, the crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers and you can get your plants delivered direct even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you. They really love you. Aww. K-C- a. 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 All right, so welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone. We're here with Robin Chris, and we appreciate you uh, tuning in today as, as usual. And uh, we have a special guest that uh, we've known. I've known this person probably 17 years, and I know he's one of the most respected people that I've ever met in the industry, and we're proud to have him. His name is Joe Berg, and he's the Director of Water Use Efficiency for the Municipal Water District of Orange County. A little background on him. Uh, as I mentioned, his, uh, his title, uh, MODOC, which is the Metropolitan Municipal, Municipal Water District of Orange County, is a wholesale water provider in 28 retail water agencies throughout Orange County, California. And over the last 30 years, Joe has developed, implemented, and evaluated a variety of urban water use efficiency and distribution system water loss programs in Orange County. Yeah, so Robert, I can add a little bit to that before we bring Joe onto the uh, onto the show. Jeff, definitely well-respected, got a lot of qualifications. Um, let me add to that. So Joe is currently on the board of directors for the California Water Efficiency Partnership, which, as you know, Rob, is a nonprofit organization that represents not only water agencies, but trade organizations, environmental advocacy groups, and other interests throughout the state. Joe graduated from from San Diego State University with a bachelor's degree in uh, resource and environmental geography. He's also the 2013 Lena Sherman Excellence Award recipient from the CUWCC, and that's the California Urban Water Conservation County. He got that award for his contributions into local and community innovations in water use efficiency. So I'm excited to have Joe Berg on the show tonight. Joe, welcome to the Water Zone. Say hi to your listeners. Hey, thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, I look forward to sharing uh, some some information with everybody. Well, let's start with a let's start with a question that uh, that, that Rob and I always like to ask, and it's sort of uh, a 
the keynote of our of our guest segment, and it's just asking you, what is it that got you into the water business in the first place? There's always a good story behind most people. So what is it that attracted you to the industry? Well, actually, that, that's a question that um, I I actually have a lot of pride in, and um, it goes all the way back to when I was in high school at Laguna Hills High School in Southern Orange County. I was uh, taking an environmental studies class. Um, Mr. Kevin Dempsey was the teacher, and uh, I always felt very connected to the environment and and uh, felt that it was so important to be a steward of the environment. Uh, so th that kind of was my slant going into it. But um, uh, Mr. Dempsey was invited to go on a facilities tour of some of the metropolitan water district, Southern California facilities, and he, he was allowed to take two students. I was one of those students. And so I got to see firsthand at real age uh, where our water came from and all of the uh, investments that were made to create that system to make sure that we had a, a reliable water supply. Um, I, I did have a slight deviation. I, I When I ended up beginning college, I went into the emergency medical side of things and um, realized soon thereafter my, my passion really was more on the environmental side and, and urban water supply. Uh, so I, I want to get a big out to Mr. Dempsey because he really had an instrumental role in, in where I'm at today. Well, he must have done a good job mentoring you because you're you're a good person for the industry, and we appreciate somebody like you being in it. Can you tell us a little bit about, about Modoc and how many customers they serve and what locations they do? Sure. The Municipal Water District of Orange County is a wholesaler, uh, as Rob mentioned, to 28 retail water agencies throughout Orange County, California. So we purchase our water from the Metropolitan Water District. Um, they obtain it from Northern California and the Colorado River, and we distribute that water to those retail water agencies. So I live in South Orange County, so Santa Margarita Water District um, uh, provides water service to my home, and I sell that imported water to Santa Margarita Water District. Um, we, we've got, as I mentioned, uh, 28 retail water agencies, but Mark also has a second tier of the which is the general public, the 3.2 million people throughout Orange County. Um, we develop and implement water use efficiency programs that that's directly by the public. So whether it's a closed water rebate or a surf removal rebate or all the multiple different devices that we incentivize, um, we work very, very closely with the public and those retail water agencies. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, what's a day in the life for Joe Berg at, uh, at, at MoDoc? What, what's, uh, what are your specific responsibilities now, Tom? What, you know, what do you look forward to when you wake up in the morning? Well, I, I oversee one of the larger departments at the Water District of Orange County. It, it, it includes a, a group that are focused on uh, developing and implementing the, the incentive and education programs uh, for consumers. Um, I also oversee a, a, the Water Loss Control Group, which works very closely with the retail water agencies to um, minimize any sort of water loss from our distribution systems. Um, 
water loss in a distribution system cannot be avoided, but it certainly can be minimized. Uh, so those are the two main sources or focuses, but um, I got a great group of folks that work really hard that are very talented um, that I can rely on and, and, our, and provide great customer service. A lot of my focus is on working with the, the local, state, and federal uh, agencies uh, to shape water policy. So um, the State Water Resources Control Board, Department of Water Resources, the Bureau of Reclamation, uh, local cities, local water districts, uh, work very closely with them on a variety of different uh, environmental and, and water use efficiency issues. Uh, keeps you definitely busy over, the, over every single day. I can only imagine. I've been to some of those meetings and uh, it gets sometimes contentious, but uh, there's a lot of good that comes out of those things. So what's yeah. been happening with the, uh, the latest release of the state water conservation regulations that were issued in January? What, what are some of the things that are good, bad, different, or how do you see it? And maybe you can well, explain more to our, our listeners what, what that actually is. Sure. So back in 2009, uh, the the state uh, adopted some legislation that mandated urban water suppliers to become more water efficient. And frankly, in Southern California, we have done a yeoman's job to uh, plan for uh, you know a stable and reliable for our consumers. We we know we live in a we know that there are huge swings in terms of rainfall and precipitation and snowpack throughout the state. So we have planned and planned and, planned and made massive investments uh, for a, a reliable water supply. Um, I believe that that legislation really, and that legislation is known as the 20% by 2020 reduction. So all urban water suppliers require to reduce their demand by 20% by the year 2020. We, we all did very, very well in, in exceeding that goal. Um, more recently, there was Senate Bill 66 and Assembly Bill 1668 that uh, brought us to that next level of mandatory water use efficiency. And rather than it be based on an arbitrary percentage, like the 20% by 2020 framework, the new framework, I believe, on a long-term basis is a more appropriate approach because it's based on uh, an efficiency standard. So for example, uh, a given number of gallons per person per day for indoor water use, a given uh, a volume of water for uh, irrigation purposes around your home uh, based on the irrigated area and based on the, based on the climate that you live in. Um, and then for distribution system water loss, there's another standard. Um, those are all aggregated up to become an agency's water use objective. Um, on the commercial industrial side of things, the state didn't want to harm business, and they recognize the importance uh, business provides to the economy. So there's not a volumetric standard there, more of a performance-based approach for the commercial industrial institutional sector. But we're, we're in the transition right now, and it's a difficult transition because it's all new to us. Um, we're 
nearing the very end of that standard setting process. That the, the the process has been ongoing now since 2017 to try to define what is the appropriate um, standard for each of those and. Uh, we're we're nearing the point in time where we're going to shift away from developing recommendations to the point to where the State Water Resources Control Board and the legislature are going to adopt specific standards that urban water suppliers are going to have to comply with. And, and the basic approach is we'll calculate our annual water use objectives. We'll compare that to our actual water use. And so long as our actual water use is at or below the objective, we would be in compliance. Good. All right. So, Joe, Rob, and I know you uh, both know you, and just just based on you know your background and what we know about you, do you think that there are, in your opinion, right? What do you believe, in your opinion, are improvements or shortcomings or recommendations you would add, modify, or delete from? from the state's water conservation regulations. Is there anything that you can specifically think of? Yes, I, I believe that the proposed starting points right now are are fair and reasonable. Um, however, the state has longer term goals uh, to ratchet those standards down. And that's where I get concerned because uh, in, in the the work that I've done to evaluate how our local agencies will comply um, shows that initially we're in pretty good shape. Uh, however, in, in the longer run, by 2030, those standards are going to ratchet down, and it's going to it's going to require an incredibly huge investment to be able to get our our consumption down to those levels. One of the areas that the state um, is required to evaluate is kind of the, the economic impact and the, the unexpected consequences of ratcheting water use down. Um, the state has done a uh, qualitative evaluation of that, but I believe that falls really quite short of what is necessary, which is a more quantitative evaluation uh, to really put hard dollar signs on what it's going to take to achieve those longer term goals and what are the unintended consequences of that? For example, if we continue to ratchet down the indoor water use, that is going to be producing less and less wastewater that urban water suppliers can then treat and, and, and develop as an alternative supply option that is a drought resilient supply option, whether it be for irrigation or, or, or groundwater recharge. Um, so those those are a couple of ideas that that concern me. We we're we're not scheduled to start with overall work until May 23. Um, so between now and then, we're as I mentioned, we're can we're transitioning away from where we're developing recommendations to where the state agencies will be actually adopting those recommendations. And in 2023, the the, the start gun will be required to begin compliance. I know in the landscape irrigation world, you know, I sat on some committees and, and, and gave input and so forth as a as a manufacturer. But one of the one of the concerns that I have is, you know, somebody builds a new home, 
they follow the new regulations. You know, they put sprinkler heads 18 inches away from the you know the sidewalks and use pressure uh, uh, pop-ups and things of that sort, and it gets approved through the through the city. What happens over time? Because I think you know and I know uh, that people don't really maintain their irrigation system perfectly. And most people uh, either they well I should say most I don't know the answer to that but either either they do their own maintenance or they have a landscape contractor or person who comes in and does that. But you know I noticed that a lot of times you have broken heads, you have broken pipes, you have uh, tilted uh, heads, you have broken nozzles, you have uh, low head drainage, all, all these kind of things. And and even if they have a smart controller, we we've seen. In, in the past 10 years, all the different tests that were done by various water agencies throughout the country, that they start off, they go through an audit with the person's home, they make sure everything's in working condition, they program the controller, and off they go. And then they come back a year later and say, gee, it didn't save any water. And, you know, maintenance is an important factor of that. Or people say, hey, my sprinkler, I used to program my sprinkler, it came on every single day for 10 minutes, and now it's supposed to come on every other day, but now it's not coming on every other day. And so what happens down the road? What Are there going to be any regulations that say now that you, you started your home, it was in perfect condition with the irrigation equipment, now five years later or whatever, you're going to sell a home? Does it have to go back to the original design of that? Does it have to go back to, to validate that it still does what uh, its performance the way it was when it, when it was put in? Do you agree with that or how do you see that? that that's not currently a requirement. Although I, I could see that that could become uh, something. Right. Uh, I, I, I don't see it anytime in the near future, but irrigation system maintenance is one of the most important things that each and every homeowner should keep in mind. You know, oftentimes they, they run their irrigation system when they're asleep, so they never have an opportunity to really observe how that irrigation system is performing. So, I recommend that you, you run that irrigation system just for a couple of minutes um, for each irrigation valve once a month, and, and you look at how it's performing. There are sprinkler repair companies, there are landscape contractors that you can have come out and, and do the same thing. And in fact, I would recommend that you you do that and I'll just tell them, I want you to come out quarterly and, and do this for me. Um, so that there's a, a regular review of what's going on. You can fix those those you know, misaligned sprinkler heads. You can trim the bushes that are blocking the, the sprinkler head from irrigating. It reduce the runoff. That runoff carries the the fertilizer and the, the uh, bacteria from pet waste into our natural waterways, and that has a very negative impact. Um, on our, our local creeks and ultimately the ocean. They, they say that uh, it, the ocean starts in your backyard and, and that's really true because uh, if you're over irrigating uh, and you're causing that runoff, that runoff is carrying the fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides, bacteria into the waterways and it, it is having a negative impact. Um, so I, I think that just having a really good awareness of how your system is operating uh, and getting it repaired any to see a, 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 an area that needs to address as quickly as possible. 
Well, I can tell you, Rob and I have talked a lot about uh, about the evolution of irrigation product in the industry as a whole, right? Smart clocks and sensors and and new sprinkler heads that have pressure regulation and flow control and automatic shutoff and stuff like that, right? The old the old term, Joe, I think it's not your father's old mobile, right? Really plays into um, effect here. And a lot of homeowners really don't keep up with the industry like those of us in it do. And contractors don't for the for the most part has been has been our experience. So kind of maybe looking at a controversial subject here, what do you think? Uh, about the whole idea that uh, irrigation contractors should be licensed or some sort of certification uh, across the country. There are some states, Joe, as you know, that have adopted that, but not California. Where do you stand on that? I think that's in- incredibly important. And I'll, I'll start by saying that in Orange County, 50% of our overall developed water supplies are applied to landscape. Um, the other 50% is just used for business and, and indoor residential water use. So that is an incredibly huge volume of water that used to irrigate our landscapes. And it it so very easily be wasted by by not being managed properly. Um, I, I'll digress just slightly because I, I, I feel very good about Orange County's role in pioneering the technology of smart irrigation timers. Uh, these are irrigation timers that automatically adjust the irrigation schedule at, on, on a daily basis as weather changes. So they can um, look forward and see that it's going to rain and they'll pause irrigation because they know that that rainfall will be free irrigation. Um, We've done studies, as, as you mentioned, Rob, that, that quantify the water savings associated with smart timers. Um, they not only save water, but they also reduce runoff and, and the pollutants that are in that runoff that, that I mentioned. So circling back more specifically to your question, um, Orange County, uh, we work closely with uh, the Qualified Water Efficient Landscape Contractor Certification Program. We, we actively promote that. We also work with the Orange County chapter of the California Landscape Contractors Association for their water management program. And we offer training uh, for landscape contractors to get certified in those areas because it really demonstrates that they have uh, a much deeper knowledge and they actually practice um, better irrigation management. So we we highly recommend that the consumer go to the uh, well.com website, QWEL, or the CLCA website to search out a contractor that's, that's been involved in those programs. But, um, you know, uh, contractors play such an important role in the management of 50% of our supplies. They are a critically important uh, player managing uh, as efficiently as possible. And, and frankly, I keep landscape irrigation as a veterinary water use. It's it's something that really is is not necessary for, for health well being like indoor water uses. So uh, landscapes bring an incredible incredible uh, high value to quality of life. Um, the the birds and the bees and all, and all of that are are huge in terms of 
landscape management. So yes, the bottom line is really want to see landscape contractors be engaged on that and, and be certified. Great. <clears throat> well, you know, we know you for a long time. I know you for associated with you for about 17 years now. And if I was the governor, I would make you, I, I would anoint you as the czar of water in California. I hope maybe someday Newsom does that with you. But what do you believe is the top three issues you would prioritize to tackle? What are, what are the three most serious problems that we really need to dig in in California with water? Well, boy, if I were czar. Um, you get a pay raise, too. It, it, that would be nice. Um, <laughs> you know, I think in, in, in light of climate change, uh, climate change is really changing how we receive our, our water. We've, we've relied so heavily on the snowpack in the Sierras and the slow melt of that snowpack to, to run off and fill our reservoirs. Uh, with climate change, we're, we're getting less snowpack and more less snowpack in, in the same amount of precipitation, really. Um, and so one of the most important things to be able to, to manage our water resources in a way that lets us capture it is to increase storage. Um, whether that be surface water storage or surface water storage, um, the, the timing of that snowmelt is changing. It's happening sooner and it's happening quicker. So we need to be able to capture that um, before it, it goes past our, our reservoirs and, and out into the ocean. So uh, storage is a, is a huge, important thing in light of climate change. The other thing is that I think California's um, Water regulators are are focusing extremely heavily on efficiency, and and I do believe that efficiency is important. But I think they're losing sight of the importance of of balancing um, uh, sustainable local sustainable supplies that could be developed and water use efficiency. Um, I kind of alluded to it earlier that if we continue to ratchet down the indoor water use standard, we're going to be reducing the amount of wastewater that could be captured and and recovered and, and made into a drought tolerant um, supply of recycled water for irrigation or groundwater recharge. So a, a better balance, I think, is, is important. You, you can't, we, we can't carry it all on efficiency. Appreciate that. Well, we're heading up to our NBC. I don't mean to cut you off, but we got to go up to our NBC news hour. Otherwise, NBC will crush us. But Joe, we, we'd love to have you back to finish the conversation. And I don't mean to cut you off. We, we, we like you a lot. And But we got to turn it over to NBC. Otherwise, I'll uh, cancel our show. We don't want that to happen. But hey. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM.